0: What are you so happy about? It was Valentine's Day. So what? Best day of the year. Hallmark uh, Day, Cards and chocolate. i you know steak. What? If I weren't so dead inside
1: already, I'd feel depressed. But fortunately, I flushed all those feelings away years ago.
0: How did you flush them out? Beer. Yay! <faults Esteem> It's the day after Valentine's Day we're recording. God knows where we put it live, but we're not the world's speediest people, but
1: hello! Hello out there, and welcome to the post-day, post-Valentine's post Day Massacre.
0: <laughs> oh, cheery grumps over there is Marco. I'm
1: actually feeling pretty
0: Good! Good! But the beer helps. <laughs> I'm Richard. I'm Marco. Uh, thanks, as always, for tuning into Digital Noise. Uh, we know you have a great multiplicity of choices of uh, DVD podcasts to listen to, uh, so we do really appreciate your custom. Um, quick bits of housekeeping beforehand. Uh, as always, welcome to Digital Noise, part of the One of Us uh, family of podcasts. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, if you're on, if you're on the website, if you scroll down. You'll see pictures of every single film we'll talk about today. Uh, If you click on any of those pictures, it will take you straight through to the Amazon link for that film. And you can just buy it straight away. Now, the the great thing is, if you buy any of these films, then uh, going through that link, then we actually get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon. It helps pay for the website. It helps keep content like this, highly suspect reviews, everything else that we do going. Uh, So we really appreciate it. It's not just those films. If you buy anything on a trip to Amazon after you've after you've gone through that link, then we get a portion of that as well. So it really does help us.
1: And for those optimistic romantics, you could actually invest in some half-price Valentine's Day candy now and be ready for next
0: year. Or buy lots of cards. Or lots of cards. Yeah. Uh, Also, um, if you really want to help support the site, uh, we do offer subscriptions. Each level of subscription that comes with different perks. Different benefits, uh, exclusive content that you can get access to only as a member. Uh, so things like commentaries, um, theog, which is you know basically oh, a, a grand pileup of, of all things nerdy. Um, the breakfast pub, uh, which is our weekly roundup of, of nerd news, geek news, film news, sports stuff. Uh, I snuck some pro wrestling in there last week, and I stand by my decision. And if you're not a romantic,
1: think of it as Friends of the site. Friends with benefits. That's what it is. You have all these great benefits by becoming a member of the site.
0: Yep. Well, now we've got the, uh, the housekeeping out of the way. <laughs> we should probably start uh, doing the, the reviews. reviews. All you know, right. we're, we're, let's let's right. practice this by saying we're kind of in a weird bit of the year. Um, because we're, we're just coming out of the January doldrums mm-hmm. when actually, you know, There's scarce few releases, but if you go back and listen to the last few shows, there's been a lot of really good stuff because smaller films are like, you know what, we'll throw our our stuff out there. And there's been some really good quality reviews, really good quality stuff coming up. Now we're in the weird phase of it's kind of a twofer. We're heading up towards the Oscars, Mm -hmm. so stuff that either has a shot at the Oscars or thought it was going to have a shot at the Oscars. Yeah, (laughs) we're going to have a couple of eight. Yeah. They've all, they've all been scheduled to come out now. So there's actually some a few really interesting high-profile releases this month. But also, we're just far enough out from last year's film festivals that now we're entering the wave of, of this year's film festival. So stuff that played at festivals last year, it's now a year out. They hold fire and they go, oh, well, this played at Sundance. Sundance has just finished. So we get those releases from last year because they go, oh, Sundance buzz. Same thing with South by. And that is actually, uh, the first film we will be starting off with, because um, it's actually a really strong week for horror, uh, and oh, that yeah. is Hangman. Ah, oh, indeed. Um, now, this is, uh, uh, the latest by a guy called Adam Mason, and Adam, he's not a, one of the, the real hardcore, uh, extreme horror guys, uh, like Fred Vogel, um, and the toe tag guys or the uh, the August Underground guys, but he's definitely been working in that field for a few years. You know, if you know extreme horror, you'll probably know things like Pig. If you don't know extreme horror, you'll have no idea who Adam Mason is. Uh, and this will be your introduction to. This played at South by Southwest last year, and um, yeah, you know, I was last year I was talking to uh, Jared Niece, who does the booking for the Midnighters. I was saying, what are you looking forward to in the list? And he went. Yeah, okay, it's not going to be for everybody, but Hangman by Adam Mason is finally the movie where Adam puts the pieces together on being the kind of filmmaker he wants to be. Um, it
1: is probably the film in this in this week's stack. It was the film I probably enjoyed the least. However, I can't deny that it is well-made, and everything on that box made me think it was something I would not like. Yeah. What I hear Home Invasion thriller... When you have anything that's even remotely kind of rapey-sounding and found footage, I just automatically check out. But I know Richard had said good things about it. It was on the list. I felt duty-bound to watch it. And while it bludgeoned me, I have to admit, it was effective. It does what it sets out to do, and it does it well.
0: Yeah. Uh, The the basic plot is that... um... Jeremy Sisto and uh, Kate Ashfield, uh, who you may remember as the, for a lot of you as the love interest from Shaun of the Dead, mm. probably the thing she's most famous for in America. Uh, they're this perfect couple called the Millers uh, who go on vacation and they come back with their ki- with their two kids and they find that their house has been broken into and you know they clean up and get it and try and make sure everything's fixed up and get extra locks put on. What they don't realise and what you've been shown through. It's not really found footage, it is POV. And I think there is a distinction. This is all shown from the viewpoint of the killer. Um, but he is filming this whole thing. Yeah, bit. he is filming everything. Eric Michael Cole as the hangman. Yeah, his face you never really see. You see glimpses, glimpses it, and moments. Mostly from the nose down, um, and his neck. Yeah, he ha- he broke into the house and has put cameras everywhere... And as you go on, you realise he's in the house, yes, and he is messing with them. And the question is, how far will this go? How unpleasant will this get? You have already established in the opening sequence that he is capable of something truly horrible and has done this before. Yes, this is not a first-time serial killer. This is this is this is basically if the Red Dragon moved into your house. Yeah,
1: that's a good way. There's to a put lot it.
0: of nods to that. Um, and it's... I mean, it is brutal. It is unrelenting. Um, it is a a lesson in tension uh, more than anything else. There are moments of extreme violence. Yeah. But but it's... But rare. But they're rare. And it's really about about the tension of the fact that you know what's going to... You you know what's happening. And the family are oblivious. That's what what Mason has done here that really works is that he has... You know, the family is just dealing with what they think are the consequences of a burglary. And they're carrying on with their lives. And you have this other context to it. And that's where this film really works. And you see how he's very sadistically...
1: Does the, they almost could be pranks. Like leaving something out when it shouldn't be out. Or moving a piece of furniture. You know, and but it begins to escalate as the uh, family starts to get more paranoid and turn on one another. And then it does ultimately, end in a crescendo of violence, but you never really know... I think there's enough hints there to make you suspect, but you never really know what this guy's motivations are, and that, in a way, is kind of terrifying. I have this sinking feeling, I hope it doesn't happen, but I have a sinking feeling that we could get a hangman two or three, and then they're just going to expand on the mythology. I really hope we don't don't go that route. uh, Mason does try me that kind of direction. It it really was smart to just do it and not answer all the questions, and that's where the terror comes. If after a while you get the sad backstory for this guy, you... You know, I think a lot of that tension will dissipate, and a lot of that mystery will evaporate. I
0: think the, the only film that Emma my, franchise the most carried out that off was um, Malevolence, uh, which not a lot of people have seen, and uh, its prequel. That I cannot remember the name of, and they were working on a, uh, a sequel that was just going to round out the trilogy, but it was always conceived that way. It basically showed you the end result and showed you how you got to that pro- got to the process of creating this this unstoppable killer. Uh, and actually, did it really, really well. And sadly, it seems like the, the sequel is never going to happen uh, because they shot about two thirds of it, and then one of the leading actors died. And God. it's you know a tiny indie, and they don't have the money to go back and redo it. Yeah, <laughs> and particularly because well, his performance was really what held the entire film together. But honestly, this is you know, I mean, this is I will I will say say fully. <laughs> And full-throatedly, please listen to this. Like Deadpool, this is not for everyone. This is ex- this is an extreme piece of horror. Uh, but as an extreme piece of horror, without going into the grotesqueness of, of somebody like Fred Vogel, this is about as, as good as this genre gets at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it is it is meant to disturb you. It will do that it's superbly. So well. The performances are excellent. Yes, The performances in. across the board, uh, the family... Uh, Kate Ashfield in particular is going kind of the besieged woman uh, really does work great in this uh, Jeremy Sisto who's kind of disappeared in recent mm. years kind of, well, he's, he's one of those, one of those whatever happened this. to Jeremy Sisto guy well, <laughs> he moments. Produced this as well so I mean this oh this is very, very much a, a passion project for yeah. him you know but I mean this is a guy who was on six feet under for years um he was on Law and order for years you yeah, know this this is a guy who's, who's you know really been a TV guy and I don't know what he's really up to these days but you know this he's is a seen any horror apparently this is a a bold choice for him and I am you know really uh quite impressed by him. you know while we we're, we're in the films that are not for everybody there's quite a mold. Bit of that yeah um <sighs> let's let's go with Hitchhike. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you know
1: what? I changed what I said earlier. If I said Hangman was the least fun I had, it might be Hitchhike. Hangman at least was very effective and clear in what it wanted to do. We can discuss whether you think <laughs> Hitchhike accomplishes that. But it is, as you said, not for everyone.
0: Uh, it's not even close to being... Uh, for everyone, this is, um, you kind of look at this and go, wow, this is a near perfect confluence of, of really great, unpleasant actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a 1977 um, Italian crime drama, uh, directed by Casc- uh, Pasquale Festa Campanale, who I think died not long after this was made and, you yeah, know, never really had the chance to fulfill his potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an Ennio Morricone score, so there's automatically a slight reason for turning up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Franco Nero, Franco Nero one yeah. of the, the great character actors of Italian um like, M- so- loves some characters Love some character. And probably the major reason for most um, American horror fans to be to be excited by this, uh, David Hess. Mo- uh, most famous as Krug from Lost House on the Left. Uh, oh, I had the ra- okay. real pleasure a few years ago of meeting David Hess and he was the loveliest guy. Nobody I ever had not ba- where I had seen him. Nobody fall. ever had a bad word to say about him. He was the most delightful human being, which yeah, I think yeah. is why he was so good at playing horrible characters. which he was like, Yeah, you 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 know, I think as, as an actor you probably felt safe with David Hess. He, he's he like, has a bull next door stopped. quality, only he's
1: insane. Yeah. You know, but fortunately stops once the camera turns off. Yeah. And we at the, the beautiful actress, what was her name? Oh, uh, Corinne uh, Claret. Corinne Claret, who was in a lot of erotic cinema back in the days when erotic cinema had a kind of cachet and wasn't as inherently sleazy as it has, seems to become now. Uh, like, she, she was, was also in house, Moonray and, and You're she the Hunter from the Future. Girl. Yes, she was a gorgeous woman. And, and based on this performance, I think, you know, not a bad actress, I just think of all, it's basically a three-hander. You have uh, a couple, Nero and Claire are uh, an Italian couple who are in America on a vacation. He's a reporter. She is the daughter of the newspaper or magazine that he works for. And right there, that kind of produces some tension between them. Uh, this is a kind of like It's kind of like uh, uh, the characters from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on a road trip, picking up a psychotic hitchhiker. The only problem is that Afraid of Virginia Woolf gives the female actress just as much power as the male actor. In this case, she's so poorly underwritten and underserved that, for me, that takes out a lot of the pleasure of the film. It
0: doesn't help that Nero spends the entire time overacting... In that way that only Franco O'Neera can yeah. do. This is not a classic Franco O'Neera right. performance. However, <clears throat> the, where this works, and it is spotty in where it works, it's I will spotty. say this, is that you, you realize all these characters are loathsome. Uh, well, everybody is pretty despicable. I don't think the female is loathsome.
1: I just don't think she's written enough to give me an opinion one way or the other. I wish she had been made more loathsome. Yeah. So that couple would have been that couple dynamic would have been more interesting. Uh, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, though, for for those listening. So this couple, they're on vacation in America. Which is really Spain? Yeah, it's very, it's very clearly Spain. <laughs> but <laughs> with, there was, with America, a few
0: signs, very well done. Some very interesting uh, signage in this film. Uh, they will also randomly run across people. Yeah, the, it, it seems to have been shot in about fifteen different languages, and none of them seem to be yeah, the, uh, I, the actor's first language. I actually recommend watching the English translation. I toggled back and forth. Oh, and I found the English dub was superior. Well, can, can I also say this is one of the rare instances, and well done, to Kino Lorba, where the translation and the English subtitles actually match, because few things drive Sometimes. me. No, it's actually spot on. I went through and they actually do match up. Mm. It's it, you know there's the odd word, but it's not one of these ones where it's, like it's not completely drastic. different scripts. But
1: between the Italian and English version, there are some some changes. Yes. Uh, however, uh, as we said before, this is a couple that are already there their relationship is already on the edge. This is a couple that are, are just at each other's throats. We don't even know why they would go on a vacation together because they so clearly hate one another, especially Nero, who is so irrationally hateful towards her. Uh, this There's such a dark strain of misogyny running through this oh, whole movie. God! Is it. Really, this vicious. guy does not like women. Uh, not just his own wife, but it's apparently the whole gender. Uh and, you know, there's some weird talk about how the whole world is becoming homosexual, you know, men on one side, women on the other. It's so muddled in terms of what it's trying to say, but it does kind of work once the Hess character comes along. There's this very pulpy uh, device where these random couple traveling through the middle of nowhere or somewhere in Southern California on their way towards Mexico... They pick up a hitchhiker, who we soon find out is an escaped uh,
0: bank robber uh, who has gotten away. Slash old-school cinematic lunatic. He, yes, and a lot of, again, another problem. And Well, this is one thing, the, the, you know a sign of how dysfunctional the relationship is. The husband, Vrango Nero's character is like, no, we're not going to pick up a hitchhiker. That's a terrible plan. The wife picks up the hitchhiker just to annoy him. And yeah. it's like, there's moments like that where you go this could work but it's it's neither emotional enough and deeply written enough about the mm. character about the, about the married couple for you to really care uh, nor all-embracingly sleazy enough to yeah. you, to let you relish the horrible fate that is inevitably going to befall yeah. at least to... Probably three of the... Yeah, <laughs> of the it, actually characters.
1: Jumps, it actually becomes... It actually becomes a pretty brutal film noir by the end. Done in oh, uh, yeah, and that sunlight. Has
0: a, that has a really but, dumb ending.
1: That yeah, actually kind of... The, the thing the, is, the end, ending doesn't feel earned to me. No. Nothing in this movie feels earned. Everything feels telegraphed. Hess is a lunatic because he's giggling and laughing too hard at everything. We know Nero hates his wife because he constantly calls her a whore in front of random strangers and just drinks all that. You know, the wife is nothing but, you know, there to react and be ogled at and manhandled and treated like meat. And it's just so telegraphed. I feel like I was being told how I'm supposed to feel about these characters and I realize halfway it's like, I don't agree at all with what you think these characters represent. To me, it's too muddled to be art and it's not sleazy enough to be entertaining. It kind of fails in both regards. And I feel like they wanted to say something about... Male female relationships and gender and masculinity, and yet they fail all the time. It works fitfully. Uh, but yeah, it's a hard film to talk about because there's just so many lost opportunities in this story.
0: The, uh, the uh, most interesting thing on here is probably the making of. Although yeah. oh, it's not terribly substantive, there is a. It's not, but it's always interesting to see uh, anybody making film in Italy at that time and mm. just like... Because they were, yeah, well, it wasn't very particularly good, but we all had good, they, him, good uh, fun at making it. Well, so I think the, they were all drunk all the way through. Well, all well. of
1: them said that it was like an important film to them or they took it very seriously. And, and I just, yeah, you know, I've been dancing around it. So I'm just going to go flat out and say it. At some point, uh, a character in this movie is raped. And apparently, after a while, kind of enjoys it. Now it has a, a horrible case of straw dog syndrome. Yes, yeah, straw dog syndrome. Right. In fact, but it's, it's even worse because it—it it, I he, think it's trying to push some of the same buttons as straw dogs, but doesn't know where to push. The well, buttons.
0: And also uh, straw dogs. There's a question of whether the act accus- is—you know—it it, there's a lot of how you read that scene about whether you believe yeah. that Susan George's character is done to enjoy it tonight, right? and that's 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 a difficult one to, to read. This, she does. Yeah, and, and if she stopped, does... She's like, see, the guy who's raping me is better in the sack than you are, husband. And I was like... Yeah. And that's just something where you just go... Ah, that's it's not just, how people work. This is just sleazy and exploitative in a bad way. And I'm okay with sleazy yeah. and exploitative in my cinema. Not in this way. This, yeah, no, this is... Uh, of, uh, on the long list of Italian films from the era which have earned a re-release, I'm not 100% convinced that... Uh, this, this is uh, on that list. And it's interesting to hear the actors
1: in the behind-the-scenes feature it kind of try to justify uh, that particular scene, but ultimately, I just don't think it works. And maybe it's just a case of, you know, standards have changed over 40 years, but still, I, I just don't think that's how <coughs> human beings work.
0: Yeah, you know what? I'm going to go for a change of to- uh, change of patron, and yeah. uh, you know something. Unfortunately, I don't. Uh, you didn't have a chance to see yet, but you know what? I'm going to push this into your hands, okay, and uh, make you watch it uh, afterwards. Uh, this is Life in the House of Soul featuring Charles Bradley and the Menahan Street Band. Ah, now if you, most people probably don't know who Charles Bradley is. Um, he's a yeah, you know, a spect spectacularly underrated soul and R&B singer. Bradley was one of these guys who never quite made it. Uh, He was on the jobbing circuit, great voice, just never quite got there. And really what happened was that in 2012, there was a documentary played at South By called Soul of America, which was this documentary about Charles Bradley and he played at South By that year. And everybody went, why don't we know who this guy is? This guy is unreal. He's, you know, late 60s, he's spent as much time working construction jobs as he has um, making music. This guy has has lived the rough life. Um, And it's in every note in his voice. And this, it's a half hour uh, basically recording session in the the little courtyard behind uh, Daptone Records. <laughs> Daptone's
1: put out a lot of great R and d releases. So oh, yeah. It makes
0: sense that Bradley would be on their label. Yeah, uh, well, he, uh, he's he's pretty really deeply involved with them, and like, yeah, I think he's their, their real pet project these days because they've got a legend on their This is him and an invited band of backing musicians, and they do six songs in the courtyard. And that's it. And little linking bits where, like, he'll explain, like, okay, well, this song is about heartbreak. And, I, you know, and never gives details about the story that inspired it. But, you know, clearly, you know, you know, you feel it. Mm. This is great. It's half an hour. It's a little concert film. And this is, you know, and I love music sessions, stuff like this. Mm. One of my favorite TV shows back in the UK uh, was the later with Jules Holland. Um, where you would have the most random abstract pairings of people like here's ten completely unrelated bands in the studio and they're going to do a two minute jam session at the beginning and it is the weirdest thing you ever hear uh, but it works uh, so I, I love that kind of you know just let them loose in front of a microphone no, and this does to this does wonderfully uh, yeah so it's basically one two three four five six seven eight tracks uh, plus four additional videos the whole thing doesn't you know, runs less than an hour, yeah. but it's great. You know, I, you know. Sometimes I think concert movies and, uh, and things of that ilk overstay their welcome. No. This does not. This is just a, a guy with a great voice and a great backing band who you could all you could all tell a guy. Like, <laughs> hey. we Charles. Bradley. Bradley. If you like, if you like old school funk, if you like old school soul, if you like. Old School r if you don't know who Charles Bradley is this is a great introduction and if you know who Charles Bradley is you're probably going to want to, see, to have this in your collection sign me up I'm but just going to pass it yeah, straight over so so to I you now that. <laughs> like, yeah, but next time we see you, each other I'm going to want to that's your homework I want to report on that I definitely will give you uh, it, great Can, cannot recommend, kind of that, like. recommend that uh, highly enough uh, that again life in, the, life in the House of Soul um uh, featuring Charles Bradley. Just great. <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is g- oddly, oddly, oddly gloriously you ringing. Know it, <laughs> you know what? Let's go for something else. Oh, right. Something not as sleazy <laughs> as our first oh. two releases, and not as, as damn right joyous, but you know what? Any time Khashoggi <laughs> turns up I am automatically going to be happy. If, if people don't know who was, he was, he was the, the Japanese martial arts guy that people really wanted to be the breakout guy in America in the 80s. And it never quite happened, mm. mainly because this was the era of terrible, terrible films. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of action movies uh, of that era that are low budget and you know, they get away with some shit. Um, you know a lot of Chuck a lot of the low grade Chuck Norris well stuff it's in this the era. whole Golden Globus thing which
1: yeah. was you just have to make a poster sell a movie on the base of that poster and then
0: slap a movie together with some action scenes
1: uh, and it doesn't different. necessarily have to be
0: any good. <laughs> the other problem was that while well, Shoko was a great martial artist in about 15 different martial arts and a fantastic swordsman uh, and a great action... You know, he did all his own stunts. He was a great action actor. And, and a
1: very, no, very no, charismatic but, lead in this. Charismatic. Maybe but not,
0: genial. But not good. likeable
1: No, <laughs> he's not really good, but he kind of gets to play something close to himself. Uh, Shoko so, uh I know I'm butchering his name, but... His character has moved to America with his family, in the hopes of starting a restaurant. They move into a rough part of town. They buy a piece of property. So far, everything looks like it's going to be great. But conveniently for the plot, their new location happens to be a drop-off point for a local gang of ne'er-do-wells. They're jewel thieves. I thought they were going to be drug dealers or something, but they're jewel thieves. And so that brings a lot of attention from the local mafia, and of course, at some point, when the police are unable to protect him or his family, he has to take the law into his own hands and don his ninja uniform, because the whole thing is, he keeps telling you, oh, there's no such thing as ninja. He's part of a secret brotherhood of ninja, and he can't ever actually reveal that he just wants to be a restaurateur and family man but because this is a movie eventually he's going to have to put on a metal mask and start taking dudes out and this was part of the problem i had with this film even though i enjoyed it uh you pointed out something that's very true that the man had a great reputation as a you know martial artist but there is no one on screen and i mean there is no one who is his equal and so, basically, you have a guy who's really good at what he does having to slow down his moves to kind of help out the stuntmen, and he's basically just taking out a bunch of dudes in polyester suits, because this is the early 80s, just random <laughs> there are- cops and random corrupt cops and drug dealers, and none of them hold a candle to him. So all the fights seem kind of uninspired to me.
0: Yeah, well, the, the one way they try to balance that, and the, the other real bright spark in this film... Is uh, Michael Constantine as Newman, who's kind of the number two gangster in this, and clearly, from pretty much the first moment, absolutely batshit crazy. Uh, Was this John Booth? uh, No, this was. uh, He plays uh, Limehouse. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, James Booth as Limehouse. Uh, Michael Constantine is is his boss. Constantine, great character actor, was in, you know. All those, oh yeah. There were, there were a lot of uh, TV series that came back in the eighties and seventies and eighties, like Ironside and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was old enough that he was when they were still black and white. Um, no, James Booth, who is phenomenal in this as the he, extremely unpleasant Limehouse Ly- Willie. I mean,
1: I mean, it just sounds like he should be a blues singer. The, the here's a weird thing about this, and one of the things that took me a little while to kind of wrap my head around watching this movie, is why is it that the one guy that you know he's going to have to fight is a 50-year-old, dissipated-looking Englishman? And it's an interesting story, because I actually had to look this up. I was so curious why they cast this guy. Uh, James Booth also wrote the screenplay for this film. Huh. And a number of Golden Globus plays, He wa- or screenplays, he was an actor in England, who was kind of looked at as a potential next big thing, Uh, but for a variety of reasons, his career hit the the skids. Probably the thing he was best known for was a supporting role in Zulu, which was also Michael Caine's first film. So they were kind of coming up around the same time. And according to Booth, uh, apparently at one point he had been offered the lead in Alfie and turned it down, which then, of course, went to their number two choice, Michael Caine, and, you know, that was a huge hit. Kane became a superstar. Meanwhile, James Booth's career just went further and further into decline until he somehow winds up with the somewhat disreputable uh, Golan Globus uh, organization and realized that not only could he be an actor, there was actually, you know, reading those scripts, he realized they were so awful anybody could write them, so he decided to kind of get the job of writing roles for himself for them. So that's why he's in the movie, and there is a really good sequence towards the end where him and Shokasogi have to, you know, go one on one. Except they're constantly cutting to boost stunt double. Yeah, it's obvious he can't do this stuff. But there's a really smart scene that kind of makes up for it. Where there's a sequence set in a warehouse uh, with mannequins, and it's a very w- good idea to stage a fight scene in that environment. And
0: then they end up. Well, because Sh- of- can just spend twenty minutes just decapitating yes. mannequins left, right, and You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, the film kind of picks up at that point. There's a lot
1: of things to like about it. For me, ultimately, it's because nobody's on screen who can really give him a run for his money. And he just takes off everybody down pretty easily except the final big bad, who you never believe is actually fighting him.
0: No. Yeah, I mean, it, this is... It's horribly flawed, but then you kind of go, yeah, but even a flawed Shoukosugi film is
1: and this entertaining kind of his first film Or his first lead role, I believe. And uh, there's a really good uh, documentary, not a documentary, it's a 20-minute interview with him on this disc that's oh, worth yeah. listening to, where he talks about how he came to America, how he got into the business. He had no acting background, he'd just done some extra work, and he was <clears> a <throat> martial artist, he kind of got into the Golden Globus thing, too. They said, hey, you're, you're a great martial artist, we'll make a movie around you. And then, you know, he realized uh, that he was going to have to choreograph all this stuff for himself, not knowing how to stage a combat scene for a camera, yeah. how to work with those stuntmen. You know, he learned. He kind of taught himself. So I kind of feel, given the whole, you know, go and of you know, just low-budget, thrown-together filmmaking, it's like, okay, we'll let you be the star in this movie, but you're going to have to choreograph it, and you're also going to have to be, you know, the stunt coordinator, so go. And to James Booth, we'll let you play the second lead in this film. You'll be the bad guy, but you have to write it, too. So I'm inclined to think they didn't get two checks, but they just got one modest check instead of what would have been a tiny check anyway. You know
0: that... It it really kind of took
1: advantage of those guys. The most
0: disappointing thing about Golden Globes being involved with this is that you kind of sit there thinking, you know, we were denied a run of rather wonderful Mm -hmm. Shokasogi Sonny Chiba films. Yeah. Which would have just revolutionized action action movies 20 years earlier. But I think they made this movie (laughs) in like
1: three weeks or something. I mean, and it shows... You know, I mean, it's put together well, but yeah, it, it's if you watch movies on USA up all night or something at two in the morning back in the day, you might have a little nostalgic kick for this
0: film. Uh, another film that you might have—it's uh, kind of the opposite way round. Uh, I don't think you had a chance to catch this. Um, the challenge, no, which I guess is you have. Um, okay. There's an exchange program, seemingly, in the early 1980s, where we get Shokasogi, and uh, for some unknowable reason, uh, Japan got John Frankenheimer and Scott Glenn. Oh, which, I think I've seen this before. Which is a really weird exchange. Um, this is one of these movies where you go, I know that you're trying to be sensitive to Japanese cultural norms and explore the history of a nation that to many Americans at that point wa- was alien and a culture that was completely different to anything they've experienced. Um, ooh, wow. This is just borderline racist <laughs> in yeah. all the best ways. But also, in a way, that of these films, is borderline racist against Americans as well? Uh, some opportunity. Scott Glenn uh, plays a, a kind of uh, a boxer-enforcer uh, who is uh, called Rick? Because <laughs> so this is like his character Stick from Daredevil. No, no, just no, no. He, years early. No, he he's a he's Another a tough gu- guy he's called guy? called Rick, and he is uh, hired um, by a guy in a wheelchair. And the reason he's, he's in a wheelchair present. is explained uh, in a flashback <laughs> sequence um, to help smuggle an antique sword back into Japan. Now, you know, Rick, being you know kind of rough, tough gaijin goes. All right then, if you pay me, um, seems like a terrible idea. It's like, why would you, why would you do this? Uh, gets to Japan, the guy who, who uh, the guy in the wheelchair gets killed, and he suddenly realizes he's been caught in the middle of this very complicated interfamilial gang war that relates to two swords that were split uh, that were split up. And there's two elder, there's two elder brothers who are. Both try to get the swords reunited because the swords have to be reunited. Why do the swords need to be reunited? Yeah, just because. Does it give it gives no it power of grace? No. 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 No, no, they're just supposed to be together. Oh, so and they this don't is even, a, like, interlock and become no, no. one big mega sword? And this is a matter of honour. Uh-huh. Because whenever you wanted to find find a reason for some plot plot point... In an American-written film about Japan in the 1980s, it's honor. you said honor, honor. Oh, yeah. You said honor. sorts. Makes no sense, but absolutely just bonkers. It's just those inscrutable Asians. So Rick, Rick gets adopted by the good side of this two rival gangster families. Yeah, not quite the sure that it. Yeah. Uh, well, not a Yakuza, because the other ones is possibly Yakuza. I never used the word Yakuza because I don't think they wanted, actually wanted to upset the Yakuza because they did actually shoot this in Japan. <sighs> Deep breath. Um, and he steadily gets trained to actually understand the way of Bushido and to become a samurai and therefore have the, the big um, sword fight sequence at the end when the swords are only unified. Which you know is going to come. No, there isn't, actually. No, training montage? no because the whole thing is a training montage. Ah. It's like long training sequences, including at one point the the good guys get annoyed at him and bury him up to his neck and leave him there for several days. It's the weirdest thing. Um, it know, it's character. very, very much of its time. Uh, Scott Glenn is laconic Scott Glenn, and occasionally buried up to his neck Scott Glenn. Um, you know, uh, Tashira Mafuni turns up uh, 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 turns up as the uh, the bad guy, which is you're like, oh, it's Mafuni. Um, he's not really doing much. In fact, he yeah. just looks like he's drawing a paycheck. His postcard so work. It, it's fun. it's really weird. You kind of look at this and it's like, there's lots of people here who you go. Well, you've got you know, Mafune, and you've got score by Jerry Goldsmith, and you've got Scott Glenn, uh, and it's directed by John Frankenheimer, of all people. Mm. And you would not know. <laughs> this isn't terrible. This isn't, you know, the clumsy cheapness of um, Pray for Death. Uh, but you do look at it and go, you know what, I kind of really wish uh, that... Somebody had, had given Pray for Death the challenge's budget mm-hmm. and put John Frankenheimer in charge of that, and it would have been a much better, kind of gritty American set gangster movie, gangster revenge movie. Instead, you've got this thing which isn't it's not really anything. Um it, apart from the odd moment of extreme bloodiness. The, you know, it's kind of odd because it kind of Potters along, and it's you know, it's a you know, there's some bloodshed and stuff happens, and then you and then oh, that guy's head came off, and then there's one moment where somebody's head gets cut in half in extreme gory close up, and you're like, the hell film is this from? Because there's there's odd moments of extreme violence where you go, that just doesn't feel like the rest of the movie. It's very weird when those moments happen. I mean, Maybe rare. put in by the producers later? No, actually, uh, it was... Um, I'm trying to work out. Frankenheimer's uh, not really known
1: for being a gore, no? huh?
0: Well, the, the thing is that there's multiple cuts of this in existence. Mm. Um, there's, there's a longer cut that's 112 minutes. This is the 108 minutes version. There's a... TV version, which is like another 10 minutes short after this, where they literally cut out all the gore, uh, which means that you probably, the you know, if you cut out all the gore, uh, the last 10 minutes make virtually zero sense. I don't see how you could edit that down for TV. I um, don't know what the, I think that had a different title in the uh, the made for TV version. I feel like, the more you talk about this,
1: I feel like I saw sort of you, I feel like I saw this many, many years ago on television. Yeah,
0: it was called Sword of the Ninja. Probably. Uh, that yeah, that, you, you, probably, you probably saw it. Yeah, the, the challenge, odd little movie. Um, in some ways, a lot better than Pray for Death. In some ways, a lot worse. It's kind of like a, I don't know, R-rated Karate Kid 2, mm. you know, <laughs> with, with 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 Scott Glenn getting drunk right. and, and, and eating at one point yeah and they're like yeah it's, it's like a premature fuck you to uh, sympathy for Mr. Vengeance um because at one point Scott Glenn has to eat a live lobster and you can tell that he is not into this scene at all because he pulls one of the back legs off and goes and he looks really sad and annoyed by this sequence. I, I, I do not sense he was quite prepped for that. I do also sense that he was quite drunk in that scene.
1: He probably he, had to get drunk to do it. But like lobster and beer and or booze or sake or whatever he was drinking, whatever rot gut he was drinking that that had to have been bad for his uh, his
0: intestines. I was, it was. It's an interesting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> interesting, weird little diversion. I feel a little queasy just yeah, thinking what? about it. Well. Well, we're on an Asian kick. All right. Yep. Uh, ah, speaking of stuff I didn't see. Oh, you lucky, lucky, lucky you, you, bastard! You took the bullet. this I way. Jesus! Did I take the bullet on this one? Wow! Um, Zombie Fight Club is. <laughs> the first rule about Zombie Fight Club is. I've got to you talk about know. Zombie <laughs> Fight Club. <laughs> yes, you. Have like to. you fuckers know. <laughs> I, I, by the way, folks, if, you might have just then heard a noise like this. That was. That was. Chris sat in the corner giving me the you poor bastard You can't not laugh when you hear that title. It's terrible. (laughs) Uh, Zombie Fight Club is... You know those moments where you go is this two shorter films with the same cast glued together? Because there is a tradition of that in Japanese cinema. Like, you you know, making a... There's still a market for 50 minute films. Mm Mm-hmm. In a way, there just isn't in the states. You know, if if you go over the twenty minutes or so, that's the definition of a, a short. You're not going to get into festivals. Um, you know, you go below seventy five minutes on a feature, unless you've got something that's really going to appeal to a particular niche audience. You're pretty much dead in the water. But there's still these weird things that occasionally in Japan, you'll get, out of Japan, you'll get these fifty minute movies. But for the US market, are glued together into two films, into one film. With some weird interstitial that doesn't really work, mm-hmm. and I think that's what you got here. That's truly what it feels like. Um, this is contemporary Japanese gore horror. The opening sequence is in this a city. It's not really defined what the what the city is, um, and there's a you know it's 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 like they've wandered into the, the Complex from the raid, but it's been dropped into downtown Tokyo. Uh, there's, it's just gangsters and scumbags and nobody really likeable, and a succession of quite uninteresting characters who are very hard to keep track of beyond their haircuts, to be honest with you, or to give two poots about you know, anything that's happened. And then it comes with these odd and now already horribly dated references. One of the characters, his cousin in America, sends him some bath salts. Which seem to turn you into a zombie. Um, Man, that was so, what, 2006? I don't know. That, that was, that, see, kids aren't doing bath Nobody does bath anymore. I think, I think uh, aren't Quaaludes back again? Homemade Quaaludes made oh, out of mud and you know. sticks. Um, so, you're in this building, and there's police who are doing a raid, but then they're all corrupt. And there's various gangsters, and a couple of innocent, vaguely innocent characters and women whose clothes fall off all the time, you're, and they're fighting zombies. I was going to say, I have not even heard the word zombie till you just mentioned it. Like, what does this have to do with zombies? Well, generally what happens is that somebody will be involved in a minor boring subplot, and then get eaten, and they'll walk past somebody else and go, ah, oh, minor boring subplot. Oh, you're dead. And they go away, and then they carry on. So do the, the bass salts turn you into zombies? It, you know, it's maybe, it's very hard to tell. Huh. Um, it's not particularly well written on that point. And this continues for a while until they drive out from the 10th floor of of this apartment complex in a car. Don't. Don't ask. And then it goes, six months later! And it's season four of The Walking Dead. Huh. And it's just suddenly it's season four of The Walking Dead. And all the women are in fetish gear. There was another extremely unpleasant, unnecessary, and really shouldn't have happened rape sequence where you kind of go, why is this here? I know you're trying to indicate something about, you know, this is post-apocalyptic and terrible. It's terrible about this.
1: You know, just in the don't. Or
0: two or three sessions we've had, that must make, and I didn't see this one,
1: but that's like... Do we have to have, like, two rape scenes every time we record something?
0: Yeah, Chris. It's it's like... Is this you? You asked for this title. (laughs) It's not even that I... I asked to include it. I didn't ask for the title,
1: Chris. (laughs) I'm not saying that sometimes it's not warranted or justified or somehow narratively important. God damn, it seems like a lot of filmmakers are just... Pushing that button because it's big and red and they've been told not to push it and they're gonna say, Oh yeah, watch, I'm gonna push it. Ri- and ri- I'm kind of over Tired it. of it. This is like
0: Fantastic Fest 2014. Oh, right. Fantastic. No, <laughs> it's no like, dead dogs in this stuff. No. no. No dead dogs. You know, there is one thing in this that is actually worthwhile. And that is in the second half, which literally has some blurb going, Stuff happens, it's later, and you're going like, hang on. Everybody's now got a different haircut. Everybody's deliberately supposed to look like it six months later. I've got to work out who's who again because you're not going to tell me because first thing you do is you drop me in a stupid action sequence that doesn't make a lot of sense. And also this guy who was supposed to be a minor, just kind of slightly confused, slightly scuzzy guy is now clearly the governor. Uh, And clearly he is supposed to be the Japanese version of the governor from The Walking Dead. It does not work. None of this works. This is incredibly disappointing because... It's not even as you know, dopey fun as, you know, Tokyo Gore Police or anything like that. This is just kind of scuzzy and annoying and ultimately forgettable. Um, and, you know, you just come at the end going, did anything happen to a character? Can't tell. Why? Because I really don't care about any of the characters. You know, uh, yeah, Zombie Fight Club, eh, big fat at this point.
1: Before we go, and I hate to make you even talk even more about this turd already, but...
0: It's what we does, do. Where does the... Where does the fight club come into play? Oh, in the second yeah. half, because the governor... Well, Governor <laughs> Sam, as I shall have to refer to him, um, occasionally sets up uh, basically gladiatorial games where people have to kill zombies. But this doesn't make any sense because they, you know, the zombies are supposed to have Completely take over everything except this one enclave. And then you actually get every time anybody gets into a fight with them, they're so rubbish, you can literally punch through their heads. Even if they've just become a zombie. So it's like, how on earth are you guys losing? Because it does not make any sense.
1: It just seems to me like some producer somewhere just had a pile of index cards with keywords on them and said zombie and then fight club. So okay, we'll make that movie. Yeah.
0: You know,
1: because wow, I'm yeah. so glad I didn't have to see it.
0: Thank yeah. you, Richard. Uh, I'm talking of disappointments. Uh, mm. Yeah, um, I don't think I'm
1: as disappointed in this as you
0: are. But, I, well, no, I'm disappointed in this because one of the best horror films of, uh, I, I'd say, the the last fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, is this great Canadian independent horror called Pontypool. You'll get no argument from me on Which that. is so great. Uh, I, you know, just nothing but praise the most for... It's
1: interesting
0: take on the zombie. Really, even the,
1: while zombies had already become passé, they actually did something interesting with that concept that no one has ever done before. And did it on a very modest budget, in a very simple location... With uh, Steve Hattie, great Canadian uh, character actor, playing a really sleazy uh, uh, shock jock, having to come to terms with this bizarre infection that literalizes the old uh, William S. Burroughs phrase: uh, "language is a virus from outer space." Yeah, and it's and here's the mis- I, I realize what we're doing right now is we're talking about a movie that's
0: great because we'd rather talk about that movie. This, this, this isn't one. bad, but this is uh, this is Bruce McDonald, the director of Ponticule. Uh, you know, I'm beginning, you know, almost reinforcing the fact that that may have been lightning in a bottle. That may have been his great film. It was um, a, an
1: adaptation, I believe, of his
0: brother's short story.
1: Yeah, but and this, I believe, is McDonald's entire picture from script to final product. I mean, you know, it, it's okay. It feels like a, an extended version of like. Ridiculous. What was that? that thing we watched It was called Hellions. Hellions. Thank you. We should have said that earlier. We were, uh, I was getting there. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I jumped in. for muttery Joe in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, remember uh, last time we had the uh, the Halloween anthology? Yeah. Uh, and what was uh, All Hallows' Eve, All Eve Hallow's 2. All Hallows' Eve 2. This feels like an extended short that somehow could have been perfect in one of these anthology films. In fact, it has one of the same premises as one of those anthology films, which is people being terrorized by a group of little trick-or-treat-like uh, demons. That's where the similarities in. The, pro- the problem is that this but is... It shouldn't have gone on as long as yeah, it did.
0: The, well, no, this is the problem. This is 80 minutes long, it's which so either means it went on too long, and it should have just, just been a compact short, or they should have taken the extra ten minutes and just just use that for some exposition and character and character building, because it this falls in between two stools, and it's a shame because there's a lot of really good potential. What yeah. yeah. you have is um, uh, Chloe Rose as Dora, who's a you know you know teenager in one of the in rural Canada. She, she's seventeen. She's you know. Vaguely gothy. She reminds. She, she looks like if, if she lived in the Midwest, uh, she'd hang out with um, uh, Micah from uh, the guest. Is she uh, lives next door to a pumpkin patch. Yeah, pumpkin literally, patch right next door. Um, she, you know she's got a boyfriend, and that's the start of a problem because she goes to the doctor because she's feeling a bit rough. Doctor calls her back and goes, yeah, 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 you're pregnant. I feel like this was a horror movie for the pro-life
1: set. Because at some point she considers having an abortion. But at some point in the evening, this is Halloween, of course. Uh, and she's going through all these emotions. She's thinking about whether she should go to a party with her boyfriend. Should she tell him about what, that you know, she's pregnant. You know, her mother and her younger brother have gone out trick-or-treating. She's at home alone, gets into her costume, and hears a knock on the door. And it's this creepy little kid, looks, just yelling trick-or-treat. She gives him some candy, but he doesn't say anything. After a while, more of these little kids start showing up, until you realize these are not trick-or-treaters. Something really bad is happening. Suddenly, paranormal activity begins to happen inside the house, around her. There's a storm inside the house. Visually, this film is very interesting, because one thing that McDonald does that I think is very economical, uh, narratively and budget-wise, is he shoots most of this film during the day, but through this weird filter that gives everything this sort of faded magenta tone, which kind of grates after a while. Yeah, because he's, he's indicating... Because it goes on too long.
0: He's indicating that it's it's the blood moon it's and that something moon, strange is happening. Yes.
1: Uh, that, but that probably that allows him some... to get
0: hit. That, that was probably irks- allowed
1: him to get it done in half the time because he didn't have to do it all night shooting. He could shoot
0: a lot of stuff during the Yeah, but there's the way to do day for night without you know, just putting a, putting it's a, a pink filter on, on the lens. There and- is
1: one point where she begins to have this... She's been captured by these demons and starts to have these hallucinations. And he uses a very interesting sort of prismatic effect. But it goes on and on and on. And that, to me, is the weakness of this film. Because there
0: are moments that work really well, but they the design all of the kids, for example, well. the design very of the creepy good. kids is, is great. The other problem is he, the way it fell down for me is is that it didn't seem to know where it wanted to be. It leaves it very ambiguous whether this is just you know the fever dream of a uh, a young girl who suddenly is faced with the possibility of motherhood, um, and the kids are just a metaphor. <laughs> That's, you know, it's it, it's yeah. never quite explained whether we're supposed to really feel this is true or not. There are undoubtedly dream sequences within it, but then you go, well, is it a dream sequence within a dream sequence? Or is some of this real? It's so <coughs> no, why is it real? How has nobody else noticed any of this? For me, why? Like, I, I, I couldn't tell quite what MacDonald was trying to achieve, and that's why I, I feel this is actually one of those rare instances where a film should be longer, because I feel like there's ten minutes of Vital information I, that I'm I, missing out. On. I,
1: I felt that it was too long. Frankly, uh, it could have been shorter, in my opinion, and, and still produce more or less the same effect.
0: Well, the me, there was a problem. You could do the same thing, but what I but I think the same thing, even at shorter, would be flawed. It would just be less annoying at forty minutes they, or twenty it minutes. Would be,
1: and in my book, that's better. Less annoying is better.
0: I, yeah, but I, I think if you'd have actually done it and filled out, you know. Is this is this supposed to really be something happening? Uh, you know, having Robert Patrick turn up as the sheriff. Yeah, so it turns out has some weird connection to okay, the kids previously. This, uh, I'm like, to yeah. me,
1: that was where it really went off the rails because Patrick. Uh, I almost said Patrick Stewart. Uh, that would be a very, different, be a very different movie, movie. Uh, but he shows up at at a key moment, and suddenly he just goes. He just delivers this brief but obvious exposition dump. Oh, and he knows how to read runes, because that's convenient. And it's been established that this is a character that this young girl has known all her life, that she's on a first-name basis with. They live in a small town. He reveals to her this tragic backstory. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? If if he did have that tragic backstory that sheds light on the current circumstances it would have been so traumatic it would have been so scandalous so it would have been the school of it would have been the thing of schoolyard legend for her to act like she's never heard this before But he's like oh this is what happened to me he's, i did not believe that she would have never heard that yeah i don't believe that he would still be in that town in the same job it's so shoehorned in it's like i need a character who can explain what's going on and yet You know, I haven't done anything to make that character pay off. It's really, really disappointing in that respect. Like I said, I think as a piece of atmosphere, it would have been a really good, strong 20 minute short. The moment, and I agree, it kind of felt dreamlike, but the moment you had a character show up and give a kind of literal explanation for what was happening, then you opened it up to being nitpicked and pulled apart. And the minute they gave an explanation for it, it ceased to work for me. Had it been a 20-minute atmospheric piece, I think it would have been very strong. Instead, we get with 80 minutes of poorly explained but artfully shot nonsense. Uh, It's good in moments, but I am a little disappointed because I expected more from the director of Pontypool.
0: Yeah, I think think that's the thing. It doesn't need to be a short... Or need at least another two script passes. Yeah, if uh, the first either track. either way it needed it needed a lot more work. You know what? Let's go quality for a while. Oh okay. <laughs> well we, say quality. Wait, we, we do quality? Occasionally. Occasionally. Like I said at the uh, the uh, the top of the show, you know I just assume Chris didn't like us, so we have <laughs> the quality elsewhere. Yeah, well, that that's different. We got table scraps. That's, that's separate <laughs> to the, to this ongoing conversation. We have to catch the crumbs from the others. <laughs> well, that's what, the, what I've got the beard for. Classic cram, no, crumb catcher. Um, no, uh, like I said at the top of the hour. Yeah, you know, this is the the month where stuff comes mm-hmm. out that actually either wasn't a contender or thought it might be. Yeah. Um, and I think top of that list uh, is Black Mass. A very oscar Which, Beatty film. Well, a very oscar Beatty film that didn't catch oscar anything. oscar Beatty, That's going to be my next stage That <laughs> did not catch anything, as far as I can tell. No,
1: it didn't. And, and I don't, I'm don't. i not surprised, because really, there's nothing in this film that has not been done before, if not better. It could have easily been a TV movie of the week. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about Black Mass. This is the, uh, the true life story of... Uh, uh, Whitey Bulger, the notorious Boston granglord who disappeared after, you know, wreaking violence upon Boston for decades. He went on the lam and could not be found for 16 years. And I believe it was only captured in like 2010, 2012, not too long ago. 2011. 2011. Uh, and he, is, this movie he is played by Johnny Depp in uh, quite well, quite chilling. Oh, I,
0: I, I, I can't... I'm going to have to stop you there. Yeah, the great You can't say quite well. He's great in this. Yeah, yeah, sure. he is absolutely phenomenal. He catches, you know, the contradictions of Whitey Bulger so perfectly that he's a guy who, you know, has his weird moral code mm-hmm. and lives to it precisely, and does not see the internal contradictions of killing people and, tr- and trying to pretend you're moral. Uh, he is truly frightening in a way that you know it's interesting that a lot, a lot of gangster movies want to make their their gangster protagonist you know they, they want to have a little bit of softness to them and, right. and you know a little bit of pleasantry that they're not necessarily the world's most frightening human being Oh, no, no, no,
1: no. Yeah, there's Whitey a little suggestion of this early on when he meets people in the neighborhood and they hug him and they're happy and he, they show that he helps people in the community out like the old lady who oh,
0: yeah. used to be his teacher. Uh, but it is established. But he is... That. But he is... Those are things that he does just to... Because he believes he should and at the slightest provocation, he will kill you. Well, not sure. even just like a little bit or frighten you, he is a truly, truly terrifying person.
1: But there is an indication in the movie that once uh, he has a couple of people who are close to him who die, Uh, and once that happens, there's kind of an indication that, you know, whatever was left in him, whatever was kind of decent, is completely gone by that point. You know, he's a man who has a moral code, but at heart really has no moral center. And it all works because of this great performance from Johnny Depp and he's ably abetted by other actors who do very good work in this but it is a one
0: man show the the narrative really around um, Whitey Bulger's life uh, is that he was you know a gangster in South South Boston who struck a deal uh, with uh, the FBI that he was going to give them he he basically he was going to give them everybody else yeah and because he was a
1: small town player the FBI allowed him to get away with it
0: and as it goes on because the you know his contact in the FBI John Connolly played here by Joel Edgerton uh, had known him for years yeah. <laughs> and it, you know it, this question of you know does he turn a willing blind eye is he just not aware of how bad uh, uh, Bulger is the additional co- uh, complication that um, his, uh, his his Bolger's brother uh, Bulger's brother, uh, uh uh, Billy Bulger, played here by Get- uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, is actually a-, a U.S. senator. Yes, he's state senator. <laughs> he's state senator. And, you know, yeah, a- and one of the most influential people in the state. <clears throat> he
1: absolutely connected, and all of these people, consciously or not, allow Bulger to grow more powerful until the point where the FBI, uh, <laughs> and, and also, I was going to say Benedict Cumberbatch. 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 I did not mean that. I don't dislike him. Benedict Cumberbatch, who has to be in every movie these days. Uh, also, this involves uh, uh, the other guy who's in every movie now. Uh, this D, the new DA, uh, Corey. Corey Stoll. Corey
0: Stoll. Who also Corey, has in Corey movie. Stoll and Kevin Bacon as, as the, the two guys who spend all their time going, what the hell are you doing? Like, he's clearly the worst person in here. He's clearly more frightening and he's killing more people. But, Wait, why aren't we rolling him up? I and mean, currently, you know, finding more and more excuses to yeah. not... He keeps hiding these leads or misattributing them to el-
1: other people and covering up for Whitey. And after a while, the powers that be cannot cannot turn a blind eye anyway. And basically, what he does is the FBI allows this guy to take over Boston. He gives them the, the Italian mafia, and they never account for the fact that, you know, they've created Crime a has <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they created a vacuum that he's gladly stepped into and has been as bad or worse than the Italian mob were. Interestingly enough, uh, eventually we do see how this turns
0: out. Again, this is based on a true story. But it, it's, done, uh, it's done in such a cack-handed way. Yeah, like, you know, and, and it's such a shame because you... This like is, I said, it feels very movie of the wiki to me. Yeah, and, and this... just st- done with a lot of class. Well, I think the additional problem is that it's... Yeah, they've talked, the directors uh, have produced, uh, have talked very directly about the fact that they had, a they they shot a different script. Um, Sienna Miller was in this with a major part as Whitey Bulger's girlfriend who goes on the run with him. Well, She's not even in this.
1: I, I was going to say, it's where this movie chooses to end that I find interesting. Because but the thing
0: is, that it was structured differently. It wasn't even just, it wasn't just that uh, it cuts off. It's just, Structured differently, and apparently the earlier version of the script, this was all uh, flashback. Ah, while I they're see. on the run, well, you look at it that like that, and you go, "Oh, well, if you put a framing mechanism around this, that probably make more sense." But you get a feeling that it would have been super long; it wouldn't necessarily have worked in the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead, you end up with a lot of scenes, and the scenes are good. And this yeah. is a you know. This is a great cast. and I we mean, like, Depp, Edgerton, Cumberbatch, Rory Cochran, uh, Kevin Bacon, uh, Jesse Plemons, uh, a.k.a. aka you know, hydrocephalic Matt Damon. Uh, you know, Dakota Johnson turns up as uh, uh, a hooker who manages to get them all into trouble and meets the inevitable fate uh, that, that is going to come to anybody who, crits, who crosses Whitey Bulger. Uh, Adam Scott, Corey Stoll. This is, you know, this is a great cast. Yeah. And you look at it and go, it just doesn't come together. Well, and it could have... And it should have, but See, it really yep. doesn't. I, I mean, didn't know that. I the, didn't know about the other, uh, the no, other original script. The, uh, which is actually what they filmed.
1: They actually so, shot wait, that. That stuff is This is
0: edited So in Somewhere a, there's a director's cut with all that stuff. That that maybe I suspect there's a director's cut that works because, you're like I said, sometimes you take... With with, with Haliant, you take the information out uh, and take the, 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 the frame mechanism out. You end up with something shorter... But formless. This season was very formless.
1: I thought it was a very unusual choice to end where they did. The only thing I can think of is, well, maybe they did an old age makeup on Death and it wasn't convincing or something. But basically, the film ends uh, right right when he goes on the lamb, and to me, that's kind of the probably the story that's better known. Which is this period of time, sixteen years, where he evaded the FBI? There were rumors of him being seen all over the world. Uh, turns out, I think he was found in California, yeah. somewhere, basically living like a retired person. Uh, one thing I, I was kind of disappointed that it ended there because all we get is a little, like a little caption saying, you know, on such and such date he was found. One of the better special features that we come across this week. Uh, is if you get the Black Mass DVD, there's an hour-long documentary that actually fills in that gap that's just about those 16 years and how Bulger evaded capture, how he got fake Social Security, fake driver's licenses, how he managed to stay one step ahead of everybody, and how he had been preparing for years before he left. He had money and secret aliases stashed all over the country. And that's how he was able to, uh, as one uh, FBI member who's interviewed, he said, this guy practically wrote the book on how to evade the FBI. Uh, The book had to be written because of this guy. Most times we catch them, but to go 16 years, and there's a really interesting, and some of the FBI guys, of course, uh, deny it, uh, while other reporters from the Boston Globe who broke the story disagree, uh, there's an intimation that there was some collusion on the part of the FBI, or that the FBI was so
0: embarrassed elements, by this. Uh, elements of the FBI. Did,
1: or certain elements of the FBI, who are no longer there probably, uh, who wanted to bury this story, and you know they weren't following up on a number of leads. So it kind of calls into the question of just how long did Bulger's influence last with the FBI, even when he was technically a fugitive. Did he have any sway over them?
0: And yeah. it's a really I mean, interesting that's, documentary. That's one, that's one of three um, uh, short docs on here. That's yeah. by far the longest, the Manhunt for Whitey yeah. Bulger. Uh, then there's Johnny Depp, Becoming Whitey Bulger, which is just him talking about prepping. The makeup. You know, the makeup stuff. Uh, and um, Black Mass, Deepest Cover, Darkest Crime, which is your standard... You
1: know,
0: yeah, interesting enough. Uh, I mean, the, the real problem is that if you want to see a film about the story of Whitey Bulger, there's a great documentary called The People vs. Whitey Bulger, which I think covers all the material here better. Right. Uh, it, you know, it's really great. If you haven't seen it, I've, I, you know, I'd actually... you know we'll, we'll put a link up to that as well uh, in this review because it really is one of the best documentaries. Uh, and if you're looking for a, a Whitey Bulger movie, I've got to go with The People vs. Whitey Bulger over this, which is such a wasted potential. Uh, the... You know, you go back and and you think about it, and the only things you remember are some really strong performances and some really good um, South Boston accents. Yeah, it feels like mugs in here. It feels like like some of the faces. Oh yeah, it feels like the actors really tried their best, but then something just fell apart somewhere. This is not a this is not a cohesive movie, and it's definitely not something that you know. I I think once the the studio had it, I think the reason they started talking so much about. depth as an Oscar contender was because he's the only thing that is truly Oscar worthy about this everything else is okay this should have been the Boston uh Goodfellas and it's not and it's a real shame it's a lost opportunity
1: yeah who knows maybe one day a director's cut will appear and all that footage will be restored or more than likely, they figured the best thing they had going for them was depth, so they just recut it to focus on him even more.
0: Well, I think no, because the thing is that, that those the, those sequences when he's on the run are all him all the time. So it's it's even like they they blanched wow. about him and put more. Mm-hmm. And tried to turn this into more of an ensemble piece, which is a really weird decision. I you know, I just think somebody blanched and went, you know, this is a longer film as is. What yeah. can we cut out? Let's make it what doesn't linear. work? And I think I think you know their attempt to make something pithy. It's still two hours long. Is yeah, like I said, nice try. Probably mm. worth it for the for Just the watch uh, it for
1: Jeff's performance and nothing else.
0: And, and that documentary
1: and the documentary,
0: which is quite good. Yeah. Well, changing to because <laughs> this is week of bad things happening historically. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> Speaking of
1: you know, uh uh somebody actually, performances. Somebody who
0: did actually go to jail. Um, <laughs> when they were originally charged, never went on the run, actually turned up for his trial. Yeah. Um, willingly. And um, actually did win an Oscar. Yes, absolutely. Unlike Johnny Depp's. <laughs> Four, <Bolger>. <laughs> two? More than one. At least think, two. Yeah. Um, I think finally end it finally ended with number three. number of nominations and this a couple is, of wins. This is Trumbo, uh, which is the biopic of Dalton Trumbo, who was... Uh, you don't know who Tr- Dalton Trumbo was. He was a- an incredibly well-respected um, uh, screenwriter... And um, in, in the 50s and then he was accused of being a communist which he was. Which he was. Um, and he being did. a communist at that point was enough to have you sent to jail. Yes. He went head to head with the, with HUAC which was the House
1: on American Activities Committee uh, at a time when the blacklist was at its height uh, well actually this is what happens with the blacklist uh, when the Red Scare and Joseph McCarthy uh, started terrifying people all over the country and convincing them that There were Bolsheviks in every washroom. Uh, There were a number of people who were accused of being communists. And Hollywood was actually, uh, not, not, not unlike today. I mean, if you listen to conservatives today, they'll tell you that Hollywood is just a hotbed of liberals. Well, it wasn't that much different then, except the liberals tended to have memberships in the Communist Party. Or at least sympathies towards that, and I give this film respect for that, in that they don't whitewash that. These aren't people who are falsely accused. They genuinely are communists. They genuinely do have
0: communist sympathies. Which is, but actually, it was not illegal to be a communist. Which is one of the fun things, because there are actually discussions. Because you know, Trumbo is at this point is an incredibly successful screenwriter. Oh, yeah. John uh, you know, was the irony. He, he was, was a very you know, rich man. You know, he'd written 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Our vines have tender grapes. Um, he was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. He'd, he'd written um, Johnny Got His Gun. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, not enough people have read and definitely not enough people have seen the film adaptation. Um, but there's, there's these moments where he's talking to other, other uh, screenwriters and other members of what will become the Hollywood 10, um, uh, particularly Louis C.K., uh, who actually has one of the standout performances here, uh, and he basically is accused of being a champagne socialist. Yeah. Um, which, which, in a way, he kind of was. He says, you know, you're, you're a rich guy
1: who's trying to be a communist, and, you know, what's going to happen when you lose all this stuff, when you lose all the money, when you lose this beautiful house? And, of course, eventually he will lose all of those things, but he never wavers in his ideals. Uh, one of the interesting things about this, you mentioned the Hollywood Ten, and so there was a period where a lot of people were called to testify before the House about American activities. It was assumed, both from the studios on, studio heads on down, that everyone in Hollywood had to play ball. You had to either name names or swear that you were a loyal American, that you never dabbled in communism. And God help you if you suggested in any way, shape, or form that you were somehow sympathetic with a socialist or communist cause. If so, you could be uh, censored, you could be possibly arrested. More than likely, though, uh, what happens in this case is they never really say that they are. They kind of, they're trying to fight a First Amendment case, uh, and it doesn't really backfire. It kind of works exactly the way they want it to. But it ends up with these guys being on what was known as the blacklist. These were guys who could not be
0: hired. Uh, well, and also, uh, let's know, Trumbo did actually go to jail. He did go to jail? And this is uh, and this the did. thing, this, this is a film of two halves. Um, the first half is basically this bunch of, of semi-innocents who think that they can get away with, with pulling the tail of Huac... And, and think that they're smarter than, than uh, right. a congressional committee, and they are generally smarter than a congressional For committee, sure. they just don't realize the consequences of getting on the wrong side of, of people like John Wayne, Hedda and col- columnist Hedda Hopper, who um, is the character spoofed um, in Hail Caesar, yeah. uh, by, if you haven't seen that yet. But Hedda Hopper wasn't certain, <laughs> she was one of the
1: best known. You have to realize this was a time when you know these gossip columnists had... Huge, huge readership oh, yeah. numbers. She had like 65 5 million people. It was the TMZ at yeah, the time. It really, really was. And they could make or break people. Them like Walter Winchell, Hedda Hopper. Uh, also, uh, everyone seems to remember him as just this genial host. Uh, but Ed Sullivan was also in this game. Uh, you see a little bit of... If you've ever seen the movie uh, Sweet Smell of Success, Yeah, uh, you get a little taste of a Winchell-like character where one bad press review can ruin a career. Anything that they could intimate that you're a homosexual, that you are a member of the Communist Party, that you're having an affair, anything, one word, and suddenly you are on the blacklist. You are persona non grata, and that is a power that they wielded over all of these people, That's even the studio heads, who they like to remind, like, you guys are all a bunch of Jews from Europe with a bunch of funny-sounding names that you Americanized, but once we put it out there, who you really are, and at the time, make no mistake, anti-Semitism was as strong as ever, and there was a very clear distinction among asserted people that if you were Jewish, chances are you were probably a communist too. The thing is, that you know, that's, the first, horrible horrible that's, that's the
0: first half of the film. That, that's true. The second half it's is actually, part. It's actually almost a comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's comedy the absurd because you have these you know, all these guys whose careers have been ruined. but Hollywood appreciated that they were the best writers right. they had. So they start getting of you know, under the table gigs, they start writing with exploitation houses. But where it gets really entertaining and where this kind of almost becomes a, where this does become a, a, a high comedy in many ways, is that Dalton Trumbo under a pseudonym, won an Oscar yes uh, for a terrible film. Uh, <laughs> the Brave One is, is you know, which is actually um, the, one of the films that he did for the King Brothers, um, who were basically Rackham and Stack and... Well, he won, I think, first for Roman Holiday. Uh, yes, actually, he... But he uh, yes, did do the Brave he One, so, but... He yeah, because so, yeah, he, he, he sold the, the Roman Holiday to Ian McClellan Hunter, who's played by Alan Tudyk, yeah. uh, who, Alan Tudyk, and uh, he gets the Oscar right. for it and goes, well, this is yours, well, and Trumbo's like, Your name's on it, I don't want it. But they actually had a pseudonym, and nobody could work out who this guy was. So it becomes something of like this, like, weird Hollywood high-farce uh, whodunit. Yeah. As, they, as everybody else is trying to work well, out. And the audience and Trumbo are going, And this
1: whole thing continues. A lot of the people in the industry strongly suspected or knew, but no one could speak of it. And it's in a way, through this constant. By constantly, uh, as the character of Trumbo himself says, let's do the one thing they tell us we can't do, which is write. They keep writing. They keep getting films made. They keep getting recognition. They keep getting nominated. And, of course, eventually, no matter how many people suspect, after a while you have, once it becomes known, more than known, you know, sorry, uh, once it becomes known that... (laughs) Everybody realized, oh, it's a joke. Yeah. This whole thing is a joke. It's pointless. Why are we going on with it any further? Which is kind of his point. Uh, I'll, I'll finish up, because I know I'm rambling. But I wanted, <laughs> there's so much I wanted to say about this film, but I didn't prepare. I don't have notes. This is why I'm not good impromptu. Get you the are. Bingo. I like to you do get get the notes. Uh, so, Play off, Joey. <laughs> yeah, hit the gong. Before I ever saw this movie, a few weeks back, I was checking out David Bordwell's uh, filmmaking, film blog, where they interview uh, a guest uh, author who wrote a biography of Trumbo, and he does a brilliant analysis of this movie. He's very, very uh, complimentary towards it, but he breaks down, like, here's what happened, here's what didn't happen, this is exaggeration, this didn't really, really happen, but it's kind of true because it's a composite. Very entertaining, and gives you a whole lot more insight into this Quite
0: good film. Yeah. I mean, and what it really, you know, the, the core of what makes it work is um, Brian Cranston yeah. as Dalton Trumbo himself. And it's been interesting because some of the early reviews said, oh, he's very over the top. And it's like, that was Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo yeah, was yeah. a cartoon of a man. Yeah. Deliberately so. Oh. Yeah. Kept it, you know, uh also does point out that, you know, everybody goes, well, how were these guys writing so much? Speed. Yeah. Speed. Speed, speed was. Spe- mostly speed. The alcohol slows you down a little bit. The spe- you know, it, it, in the same way that uh, you know, you look back at 1950s and 60s science fiction, you go, "How are all these guys writing?" You know, really, you know, Moorcock, for example, writing like three anthology magazines a week. That's everything I speed, that stuff was safe. Speed. Um, where this kind of where this is a little bit more variable is in the quality of the lookalikes. Yeah. Um, because, you know, these are real historical figures. I mean, Cranston nails Trumbo yeah. perfectly. A man who spends half of his life writing in the bathtub while speeding his tits off. Um, <laughs> but he has this advantage of having these
1: enormous horn rim glasses and this huge mustache, which I, I'd say
0: anybody who wore that. Would kind of look but like he embr- no, no, because he embraces like he does it. Like, yeah, you, know, you could put that on and, di- and you disappear behind He's it. He's also he... a lot less well known. When you have a guy playing
1: Edward G. Robinson or John Wayne, yeah. you have a whole well, that, history that's, to judge.
0: That, against him. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, yeah, you know, the, um, the uh, yeah, Christian Burkle is, is Otto Preminger yeah. is great. He gets Preminger. He absolutely nails it. Uh, Dino Gorman as Kirk Douglas. That's bad. No, I oh, I, th- I thought he was one of the best things in it. Good. You know, he really gets, you know, I mean, when you're carrying an, a truly iconic character, uh, iconic actor who nobody else has tried before, yeah. um, that's you're, That's dangerous. That's more dangerous, I think, than doing, you know, what is at the end of the day a not particularly good John Wayne. I mean, David James Elliott as John Wayne. Until somebody said, hey, look, it's John Wayne, I'm like, yeah. who's that guy? It's actually one of the worst John Wayne's I think I've ever seen. <laughs> so it's almost like they went, "Screw it, let's, let's not even try for the mannerisms." It's impossible to do those kind of
1: performances, though, because everybody knows what John Wayne looks think, like. I,
0: but when you've got, you know, when you when you've got somebody who's going all out, like uh, Michael Stuhlbarg as Edward G. Robinson, and nailing Robinson, I didn't think he nailed. Robinson. Oh, I think he got. I think he got Robinson. I think he got. So if, I didn't
1: realize off-screen.
0: Edward G. Robinson until someone called him I, Edward no, G. Robinson. I, I think he got the offscreen. screen it clicked, and I said he got the off-screen Robinson. He got that guy, yeah. I think, sure. he, I think I think he hit that. But there is some great, you know, there's, there's you know uh, Stephen Root and John Goodman as the King Brothers, yeah. Uh, particularly at one point, Goodman has a classic Goodman esque meltdown, yeah. which is one of the most fun moments. I mean, this is and who knows if that really happened, but God, it'd be great oh, if, well, yeah. I feel like you know with the, the history of the King Brothers, I, yeah, it feels right. Yeah. But you know, this is this is in the same way as. Um, uh, as Black Mass Trumbo is very episodic mm-hmm. uh, I think it almost tries to take on too much and it does feel in in a way almost like um, you know, a zombie fight club uh, it it does say, feel like two films. It, it is, is nothing like Zombie Club. There's no
1: podcast anywhere in America right now that is going to make a comparison between Trumbo and Zombie
0: Fight Club. <laughs> so thank you for Richard sticking Whitaker, with us ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, um, but it does feel like two stories glued together. I think there's sure. structurally but probably much more innovative ways to do this, and I, I almost think the first half is is interesting and well done uh, and has some great performances. The second half is hilarious. The second half, you know, the second quite half is fun as out. a as a fan of, of ridiculous politics, I love the second half. The first half I liked. Yeah, uh, right. I think that's yeah. You, know, you know, this is a much better film than Black Mass. It still has its flaws and its inconsistencies, um, and I think it's still going to be most interesting to people who know the era anyway. Um, but and therefore most likely to you know, go is that supposed to be John Wayne, really? Or, you know, pick holes in particular things. But the second half, you know, stick around. The first half, yeah, there's moments you're wading through. Uh, The second half is spectacular. Yeah, and you see, to me, this is such
1: a fascinating period in in not only just film history, but American history, uh, which is why it's hard to just do it in capsule form. There's a whole lot of other stuff that happened. And... uh, as has been pointed out, yes, Trumbo did win that second Oscar. Yes, he did help break the blacklist. He did allow people like Kirk Douglas and Otto Preminger to go, you know what, we're going to put this man's name on it. We're not going to hide from this anymore. We're going to tell the world Dalton Trumbo wrote this script because it's too good not to say his name. But, as has been pointed out, it was going to happen. There are other cases of guys who were nominated, who, were, who even won, but were not known and everybody knew that something was weird, like somebody showed up. Like, s- mysteriously, that that screenwriter never showed up for oh, the Oscars well, and, had to be and taken by someone else. Yeah, Trouble I, was the best known, but this was going to happen to somebody. It just happened to him first. You let's, let's face facts. Credit let's face facts. List.
0: The, the Writers Guild of America. <laughs> the, the rules are so ridiculous and yeah. Byzantine. that like who knows who, knows who, know, who knows who wrote absolutely anything? I've known people who've been all caught on court on that and it's like, your your name is not on there and somebody else's is. A classic example recently, um, The Force Awakens where Michael Arndt clearly had a good enough lawyer that even though they pretty much confirmed that everything from his script got thrown out, that he's still got his name on there. It was like, didn't you say that your script had been thrown out? Well, it doesn't matter because it's still a wall of the structure. But
1: there is a case, and I can't remember now, but again, it's in that great article in the David Bordwell blog. Uh, there was a case of a blacklisted writer who uh, had a phony name, and under the screenwriting credit, there's two guys driving in a truck. Here's this phony name under the screenwriter's credit, but they cast the writer as the actor, as one of the actors just sitting in the truck. And so here's his phony name above the picture of the real guy. And of course, everybody in Hollywood knew what that meant, but no one in the general audience knew. So, it was kind of an open secret until it couldn't be a secret anymore, and Trumbo deserves a lot of credit for helping break that down, because once once he was able to get his name on his work, Joseph McCarthy and Roy Cohn and all of those bastards basically ceased to function as the HUAC and basically lost face in front of America. Thank God.
0: Yeah. Well, moving on to another film that I think more people thought was going to be an Oscar contender, and then... Turned out not to be because, ah, it's nice enough. And I think in the 1950s it probably would have. Mm -hmm. Um, But the 33, which is, you know, it was, you'll probably, when we start talking about it, you'll go, oh, I remember that. It's good. And that was in the 50s 50s too. Back in uh, 2010, um, you might remember there was... um, uh, 33 miners who were buried um, uh, and trapped in a mine in Chile for two months. Um, and they got them all out, which is actually unprecedented. But again, yes. this, this massive media circus because these guys are you know, down there and they finally managed to work out who, where they are and drill a hole down so they can get food and water and clothes down to them and they can send video messages up. But that was after about a month. And these guys are still there another month going, okay, when do we get out? Well, everyone thought they were dead because they only had
1: food for three days. Yeah. And they realized it would take them almost two weeks to (laughs) dig a hole that would be anywhere remotely to where they were. But as you said, once they actually made contact with them, then they could provide food. And that, to me, is where the film got a little bit interesting because... You know, now that these guys are media stars, they're still
0: trapped underground. Well, they let's, let's, get, let's, get, let's get let's get let's get let's to that. We on. you know, the, you know the this is you know it starts off with the a celebration including an old timer who's on his last day at the mine, of which course. which is kind of I, I really hope that was true.
1: The, this um, film has a bunch of types. I thought it was very formulaic. You have the old guy who's two weeks from retirement. You have the new guy, the natural leader, and there's 33 guys there. There's no way to characterize them all. So, so there's, there's, all there's,
0: basically, there's basically five characters yeah. and some guys. The guy uh, who's you know, going to be a father for the first time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and much of it centers around Antonio Banderas as uh, uh, Mario Sepulveda, who is the, the kind of
1: <sighs> sort yeah. of self, designated leader, self, you
0: know, designated leader of, uh, of the guys when they're down there. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is the ship foreman who ended up trapped down below when yep. he normally because he was actually trying to you know per the story was trying to actually get some of them out and went okay we're not going to get past this this collapse in the mine we're going to have to um, push down into the refuge which is a purpose built uh, purpose built cave effectively right down at the bottom and hope that we can be dug out um, but he and-
1: also knows that no one's ever
0: done it for. Yeah. After this three is, days they just give up. This is, this is, ne- you you don't have rescues in these kind of situations. Yeah. These guys are dead. They're ridden off. And this is reinforced and the only people who, who don't believe they should be lef- left down there are their family members mm-hmm. who are up at the, up at the top. Uh, and then uh, uh, Minister Laronce, uh, uh Golbon, who is the Minister of Mining in Chile, played by Roder- uh, Rodrigo uh, Santoro. And he's new to the gig, and he's like, "No, of course we can, we can get them out." And everybody goes, "What?" Yeah, and he but goes, "You don't know anything no, do no. about mining." We're we'll <laughs> going do this, and they're like, well, "You're you're an idiot." And he's like, "Well, no, I'm gonna get teams." And he got drilling teams to come out yeah. and actually attempt to find them. It was unprecedented, but it was
1: also brought about because of all the potential negative publicity. It pretty much forced the government of Chile to give a shit. Yeah, you know, because they they did not want to look callous. Uh, certainly, the mining company was like, "Look, you know, once these happen, we just, you know, we just move on. We wait a few days, we... and then we begin all over again." They were able to raise enough recognition around the world that the government had to act. And you know, surprisingly, uh, if you if you're hearing this now, uh, spoilers, they make it. But it's still an interesting journey in how they get these guys. Yeah.
0: and uh, this I mean, it's very
1: well made. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, it's, Higgins, a director I'm not familiar with,
0: but it's, it's, does an able job with this. It's affable. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a feel-good disaster movie, yeah. which is a very strange thing to say, because you're kind of like, well, you know they get out, if you knew anything about the story. Where it's slightly weird is that this is, um, the cast is, is almost uniformly, uh, either, um, Spanish or Mexican um, it's a hodgepodge of Latinos this is why we are well no it's n- this is not the thing you Bob Grunton as the it's president not. of Chile Yeah, Bob Grunton <laughs> as, as, uh, as uh, Sebastian Panera uh, Gabriel Byrne Gabriel Byrne turns up as a, a, a Chilean en- mining engineer you're like Gabriel Byrne? It, it, weird this is bizarre this, right. Which is like, why
1: when you said the '50s, I'm Ju- like, oh yeah, this is like when you have Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger Binoche. playing Mexicans. Juliette Benoche as, a, as an empanada salesman or a vendor. I'm sorry, Juliette Binoche is not wandering the streets of Chile selling empanadas. There is the, no woman in Chile so who looks like Juliette but they do it really well. Yeah, this is this so, is a this is a well constructed. I'm not going to get on that whole yeah. brown washing, white washing debate. They do it justice.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, it, you know. It would have
1: been a stronger film if they shot it in Chile with Chileans. I'm just saying. But it, would have been, it would have been a different film. Uh, yeah. Probably a better film. You, well, I, I don't it, know. It I mean, would also a better a film that
0: hadn't wouldn't be made. Yeah. It, it's, on this budget. And it's not on this budget. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, it actually does carry a degree of the claustrophobia. The actual mind collapse sequence is extremely well done. Mm-hmm. The characters are interesting. They're three dimensional. Everybody's yeah. three dimensional. They're yeah. not just. They don't have a lot of time on screen all the time. That's but, the problem. But there 33 are thirty-three guys. You have to narrow it down. There are fifty subplots. A lot. All of, of which are basically come back to the same thing is like, how do we get these guys out? But you're kinda of like, well, hang on, is that oh is that such and such as... No, that's not. That's that's his wife, not yeah. his there's, there's sister. There's a great
1: running gag about the guy who's got a wife and a mistress. Yes. They're both Which is actually one of the most games. fun things there. It's it's one of the Huge rare moments of things. comic relief in the story. Uh The director of this, uh, when they were doing the initial publicity rounds, I did hear an interview, uh, and to me, I had never heard of her before. To my... Her name is Patricia Higgins, I believe it's Patricia Higgins, I think she's a Latina filmmaker. I don't know where she's based out of, but I'd never heard of her before.
0: Well, her most famous film previously was uh, actually uh, the Disney Channel's Lemonade Mouth.
1: There you go. But she's
0: recognized something. I'm
1: I'm not kidding. I... You know, I think I saw that movie, but it was a totally different kind of movie. Uh, now, now that was, I was really late party. at night on the internet somewhere, and I was drunk. So, Oh, she um, also um, uh, directed Girl in Progress. Okay, but this is actually a really strong effort on her part, and I remember hearing her on, going out of the publicity tour for this film, and she mentioned the thing that made her want to make the movie. Uh, there's a moment where these guys, they're facing what is probably their last meal. Imagine 33 guys trying to split a can of tuna amongst them equally. And she said, at that moment, all of these guys were hallucinating, basically, what they really wanted to be eating. That their loved ones were there, serving them their favorite meals, even though all they're really eating is a piece of cookie and a gram or two of tuna. And it becomes this wonder... She said that was the moment she wanted to make the film. And oh, you know, see that It's a beautiful
0: f- moment of magic realism. It's it's also one of the best depictions of food uh, yeah. since Babette's Feast. Correct. Which I still regard the high, as the it's high water market of, uh, of uh, cuisining no sort No, I mean, there, there are some... <clears throat> you know, for a, a film about a... You know, a heartwarming film about a natural disaster, this is about the most... Heartwarming and disastrous film you could possibly yeah. imagine of it, and it does take some pot shots at the politics of Chile. It does take definite pot shots at the um, uh, at the company, oh, sure. which was sued and lost the, lost the case and still doesn't pay these guys out. And there is a nice moment at the end where you got all thirty three of them sure. out on a beach, and it they actually got the guys, and that's, that's kind of charming. Yeah. And you go. Yeah, that was a nice way to tell us. Tell me, a story I already knew. She
1: um, a lot of suspense from what I think is not known to people. Where the film does kind of come alive. I, I mentioned that one moment of magical realism, but as Richard pointed out earlier, at some point they do get in. They are able to get them food. They are able to get them water, and before long, they're getting donations. You know, Nike is sending tennis shoes. Apple is sending them iPods suddenly, you know,
0: their leader Mario
1: is kind of there, Super there is, Mario. There is actually a TV.
0: very entertaining moment which oh. kind of harks back to earlier on where in the... Before they're discovered, they're arguing about who's going to have a cookie and then once they've got all... Once they've actually connected to the outside world, it's like, whose iPod is this? Yeah. And then... going to get the... You know, there, there are... You know, there's some really nice moments in yeah. this. It, you know, honestly, this is a fine little film. Yeah. I think of the... You know, it, it's... I think it's it's a, so scattershot, though because it cast doesn't. You know, it, you've got to bring so many people together, and it spends so much time zipping between the outside world and, and the cave that you've got to go. Well, I'd almost prefer you. They should have spent on more person. time down below for the sense of claustrophobia, yeah. because you know, every time you feel like, oh, the sense of claustrophobia is like, well, we're going to go upstairs and, and see what's happening in the outside world again. It's like, oh, well, okay. And it, it, it felt like it was trying to do so much um, that it, it really ended up wow, so all-encompassing that it, it really does not have everything. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, I... I then but it is, it's, it's, it's heartbreak. It's, yeah. it's,
1: it's tear-jerking. Yeah. It's a tear-jerking, heartwarming kind of story. I think its value is that while we know the general outline of the story, most of us don't know what happened while they were down there, so it delves into some of the... Tension that's inevitably going to occur between a bunch of guys trapped together. Uh, I will say, uh, oddly enough, the movie, it kind of, I, it didn't remind me of a movie. It reminded me of a book that became a movie. It reminded me of The Martian. When I read The Martian the first time, you know, we have the guy stranded on Mars, and I just thought, okay, it's going to be 200 more pages of this. And then suddenly I was surprised when it cut to some guys at NASA going, holy shit, this guy's still alive. How are we going to figure out how to do this? So, you kind of have this sort of two stories going on. There's the story of the guys who are besieged and the guys who are trying to rescue them. And I agree with you. I think had they focused on one and not the other, it might have been stronger, but then we wouldn't have known how they got out. So, it's worth watching. It's formulaic, but you know what? Unless you're completely dead inside, you'll feel something watching this. Talking about tragedies. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
0: Do you remember where the Wayans brothers were good? Uh, Before they made us all sad with, with you know, the um, scary movie franchise. They did one movie genre parody well, and now that's all they do. Uh, and the thing is, this week, if, you, if you've ever wondered, why does anybody care about the Wayans Brothers in cinema? Because, you know, yeah, some of um, In Living Color was good. In Living good. Color was good. Uh, it was the Black was, Saturday Night Live. But, you know, why would anybody care about them as filmmakers? There is one answer, and that's, I'm going to get you, it's sucker. Yeah. <laughs> 1988. I had forgotten this was that old. I'd forgotten it was that good. Honestly, <laughs> this is... You, you forget, because you, you kind of have just... Uh, you're just stuck in this place where you're like... Just hearing the names Wayans Brothers at, uh, in connection with cinema just makes you want to throw stuff at the screen. Yeah,
1: it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. But this, this is where was, it started.
0: This was then <laughs> with... Pretty much zero budget. Yeah, and he's doing everything. Keaton wins. He is doing everything. Everything. Star writer, Star director. Writer, director. Uh, I think he may have actually uh, worked the commissary as well. He might have driven people to set. For all we know. Yeah, uh, uh, you know. uh, this is them spoofing perfectly the black exploitation genre, yeah. um, and they do this be, from a place of absolute love of course uh keen uh keen ivory Wayans, um is jack spade which is holy hell even a black helmed <laughs> uh, exploitation spoof now could not get away with calling their lead character jack spade i'm sorry that is one step too that, that's why hey, oh you guys you guys really were prepared to, pam
1: Greer can play coffee i mean
0: i think they were open no i think right, that was just. the thing i think you're kind of like going through a flux period I think this was, a, be, be, at this point you could do it in a joking way. Um, but he comes back from the army to his old neighbourhood after his bro- brother, Junebug, has been uh, mysterious. Uh, uh, oh, uh, overdosed on gold. Overdosed on uh, gold chains. And uh, he, <laughs> it's hilarious because, it, you know, this was back when they had a little bit of restraint. Uh, because when Junebug, you see photos of Junebug, and he's covered in, oh, what a lot of gold chain. But not like the insane amounts that you would actually now spoof it with, yeah, because they would that be. Order was pretty heavy. Oh no, it's like heavy, but it's not like but you can actually but see. You, them. How do you, you go can to a see and all that. Yeah, you exactly can see the lip. Whereas the Wage brothers now do not have that degree of subtlety about them. Um, so well, to yeah, be fair, they couldn't afford that many chains back then. No, now is, they could afford all these This is low chains. budget. It's um, but yeah, he comes back and he declares he's, he's actually going to go to war with um, with Mr. Big. Mr. Big. Uh, who is uh, played by the great character actor, John Vernon, yeah. uh, who actually at one point uh, does get yeah, this conversation about, aren't you white? And he's like, yeah, and? You think exploitation movies are beneath me? You think gangster movies are beneath me? No, yeah! but, like, but,
1: but you, it's like, yeah, you know, a lot of big movie stars. I mean, to me, that was always a giveaway when I was a kid. And they we're like, a lot of big stars that you wouldn't expect to be in these movies show up. Like Shirley Winters and Angie Dickinson. And I, th- I always thought that was supposed to be written for a much bigger name, and that was the best name
0: they could no, get. No, well, no, it's not even that, because they actually, because the, the reference there, like, uh, A, Shelley Winters back then, sure. much bigger name. But, you know, B, the fact that they, uh, uh, they referenced Big Moller, I don't know, like, Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you know you're exploiting. Like, that's your reference for that point. It's not just
1: black exploitation; It's exploitation films, period, that yeah. these folks started. And you're right, it's done with a lot of love. It's done with a lot of fidelity to that kind of material. If you're familiar with any of those films, and, and, and it's important to remember, in 1988, these films were still only about 10 years old.
0: Yeah, no, and a lot of them were, ancient, but they were, them were almost rushed. lost as well. I mean, yeah. but you know, they, they, where they get it right is that uh, they get the real guys. In yeah, they to, should have had Pam Greer as the mother, but they oh did. yeah, They're, but to play spoofs yeah. of their of their characters: Jim Brown, Bertie Casey, Isaac Hayes, Antonio Fargas. Antonio Fargas Antonio in one of the best. Okay. Uh, Oh, demolitions God. of his own of his own stereotypical character. When he
1: plays the pimp Willie the pimp
0: or whatever his name is. Yeah, those. I don't find sh- I don't find shoe gags funny. I generally find that they're going to be pretty tedious. There is a hilarious gag involving ridiculous shoes. This is actually like, the moment I remember, and it's not just the shoes. It is his ensemble.
1: This is a pimp who has been locked up for 10 15 years. And he gets out thinking that the world has not changed. And he comes out wearing what he wore into prison. And everybody, of course, is laughing at this ridiculous outfit. Uh, This is one of the gags that... I haven't seen this movie in 20-something years. But this is one of the gags I've never forgotten. And I was surprised by how many things I remembered. Uh, This film came out when I was 14 years old. And it's safe to say that my tastes have changed considerably... Since I was 14. Arguably. But, I still enjoy moments of this film. I can look at it more critically. I can see the seams in the budget. I can see jokes that didn't land. Or a shot that maybe just went on way too long. But you know what? It is made with a lot of love. With very little money. But with a lot
0: of detail. Plus... And a lot of talent. Plus, uh, if you look really carefully, uh, you can at one point see an... Ex- well... An extremely young David Allen Greer. Oh, at David Allen Greer, Chris Rock shows up at this with another famous
1: bit from this movie, but the guy who just wants to
0: yeah, don't, a, don't, he,
1: don't, uh you know yeah, don't, we, spo- yeah. we shouldn't spoil it. You're right. If you haven't unless you're old fucks like us, you've already you know,
0: maybe you haven't seen this movie. But this worth checking out. This is this is great silly old fun. Yeah. Um less silly old they friend. don't make them like this
1: anymore they... and by that by this we mean they don't make them good anymore nope
0: so nope. see where it all started and then just quit from there uh, yeah another one that we're on the, on the topic of, of, of uh, kind of lost comedies um, one that uh, you didn't catch uh, Highway to Hell mm. well this is a this is one of these things where you go this existed uh, this is a 1992 uh, horror comedy written by Brian Helgeland who later went on to not be ashamed of his career. L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential. Um, <laughs> Crash, right? Uh, yeah, we don't talk about exactly. that. Exactly. So, uh, I'm not, we, not saying we, the man's perfect. No, no, no Crash. That wasn't, that wasn't no, wait, wait. I have to go the other guy. Yeah. Never mind. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, it's a... Basically, uh, it's... Uh, Chad Lowe and his girlfriend, played by Christy Swanson, yes, the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, go on a road trip uh, and are told by a mysterious old man, "Do not stop. Are you in trouble with that? No, keep going. Are you- <laughs> You're being outwitted by a bottle." <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of uh, they are told, and they- they're told by a mysterious old man at the, the gas station. Don't stop while you're driving through the desert until you've gone past two Joshua trees because something bad will happen. Well, what will happen is that (coughs) a cop from hell, who is known as Hell Cop, will come from hell, uh, arrest Christy Swanson, take her to hell, and then Chadlow will have to drive through hell in a borrowed vintage car uh, because everybody else in hell drives uh, either souped-up police cars... Uh, or Volkswagen Beetles. I'm not sure what the symbolism is there. Uh, and have to rescue her back and get her back to the real world. You're almost making this sound good. It's not good. It's really weird. It is loaded with lots of little vignettes as he's trying to get through hell, which are kind of... He's supposed to represent almost like... I mean, each vignette is almost a circle of hell, but not is quite. Is this like a literal hell, or is he like... No, no, he's, he's literally... Think it's hell, somebody comes out and goes, no, this No, is no, he is literally in hell. He's literally in hell. He literally is, in, hell. in fact, he has to go through a magical portal to hell to go and find her. It's not symbolic. He's in hell. All right. Um, this is a really weird little film. Uh, None of... You know, it, it's filled with... Lots of, of strange little uh, little cameos. Um, you know, Patrick Burden turns up as uh, Beezle, who's actually Beelzebub, uh, for no readily apparent reason. Lita Ford is in this. Gilbert <laughs> Gottfried as Hitler. Uh, the entire Stiller clan, Amy, Jerry, and Ben... Oh, wow. Uh... uh Kevin Peter Holt is there as chair the, uh, the um, Getting Across the River Styx. Oh, so it's not a Judeo Christian hell.
1: There's elements of. Greek oh, there's all there as kinds well. of stuff. It's just all the hells. This
0: is a really bizarre movie. And it's kind of funny in places. And it's kind of action in places. And it's it's really. You know, a lot of the, pe- the same people who are involved with this uh, were also involved in things like 976 Evil. Um, and they've you know (laughs) (laughs) harsh cops harsh not a great not a great film Um, all kind of odd little you know an attempt to have another really successful horror comedy because the only really truly successful one of the era um, both artistically and creatively was Evil Dead 2 Evil Dead is a horror and um, Army of Darkness is not that great I don't care what anybody says um, you know, and everybody's trying to do something, and they never really quite hit it. And this is another one that doesn't quite hit it. But if you're watching it, you're kind of, eh, it's, it's, it's entertaining enough. Uh, there's enough, you know, 1992 period quirk to make you go, ha, pizza and beer, and if I see this for five bucks in the, in the, uh, the discount being at Best Buy, I'll probably pick it up. I can recommend it for that, um, you know. But you know, odd film, odd its era hasn't aged astoundingly well. Now, um, yeah. these films had
1: such a better shot in the '90s too, or in the '80s when they had like TBS and WG and all these old cable TV shows that you know would show weird stuff at two, three in the morning, and you know, like, there's only like. interesting things on and this is the weirdest of them so I'll watch in this day and age when we have so much choice it's kind of hard to pick something but I can easily see a time when like in 1989 or 1990 it might have been midnight and that came on TV and I thought you know what I'm just going to leave it here because I only got five channels anyway so I'll watch this
0: yeah Uh, the weird weird thing is that this is actually um, the follow up by director Atta De Jong to Drop Dead Fred which tanked at the time, but has an incredibly loyal fan base. I don't think that Highway to Hell has any I, kind of fan base. I
1: love Rick Mail, but I, I don't understand the Rock Dead
0: Fred even, fixation. Yeah, I, I think that's far more to do with you know, men of a certain age and Phoebe Cates. Yeah, although women, that's are what cer- we women of a certain age sometimes uh, high. Yeah, women of a certain age, age Rick Mayo as well. So you know, it's, it's, it's let's just say it's of its age. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. And, uh, yeah, you know what? We, we've reached that point. It is the final It is the, the final, 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 final death film. Um, which is that rare combination. It is not only our giveaway. Yeah, yeah the musical moment. Uh, it's also doing? our combined pick of the week. Yes. This is a clear pick of the week. And i got to say, when the stack arrived this week, this is not what I was expecting it to be. Nor I. Uh, uh, by, uh, by a head. When you're going up against things like Trumbo, which we both really like, Yeah. Uh, and 33, which is kind of like, oh, it's charming and heartwarming. You need Granny can see it. We had a whole bunch of, we had do, a bunch of Oscar bait this year. Do this not week. watch Estranged with Granny. No. This no. is, you know, remember when Crimson Peak came out? And uh, Guillermo del Toro was very clear to people: this is not a horror movie. This is a gothic romance with all that involved, all the, the luridness, all the aristocratic weirdness, the innocent in a castle, the strange goings on. You know, generally sleazy. That was what he was making. And *Strange* is absolutely 100%. A gothic romance, and God bless it for every single silly, over-the-top, ridiculous, nasty moment of it. I would not use gothic romance. Well, no. I the thing is, the, the romance. Yeah. No, no. no the, the thing is, the gothic. The, the, the it is a of term fun. of art. It is a
1: gothic film
0: for sure. Oh no, no. Gothic uh, romance is a, is a is a particular term of art. Okay. Because the that. gothic is 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 more an aesthetic than anything. The gothic romance is a particular kind of of narrative form, <clears throat> and it absolutely fits in with things like the Castle of Otranto, the Monk. Uh, where it's, you know, it's not a romance as in, oh, I love All you, right. but, you know, the, the bit, you know, as in of the romantic movement, it's, up, right. it's um, of right. a cusp. I hear um, to say it. This is... Well,
1: see, I never wonderful. saw the del Toro film Crimson Peak, but it was on my mind while I was watching this movie because I saw the trailers for that, and I heard people tell me about it, and I thought, this is art directed within an inch of its life. I don't believe for a second this is a real place that this is some fantastical stage set that you've constructed and art-directed. This place feels, and it's
0: more effective for that, it feels like a real place. It is a real, it's place. A real place. It is it's a real place. place. It's it's a real place. They just borrowed a mansion house. Yeah. They and, a, and, borrowed a mansion house in, a, uh, in just near Durham. There were a couple, that actually,
1: for interior and exterior, but it really makes great use of the location. It's obviously a low-budget film, but the location works perfectly for the material. This is a story by a young lady named January. Played by Amy e. Man- e. Manson. Amy e. Manson, and really a great, great performance from her. She is on vacation with her boyfriend somewhere in Brazil. She has a horrible... No, no, it's not uh, uh, They're in Brazil. Was it Brazil? Ah, yeah. They, in fact, that becomes a point where, you know, the brother says something you, you, trust Mexican doctors. Like, actually, that no, we were in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they are abroad, uh, and they have a horrible wreck and she is badly injured. She is temporarily constrained to a wheelchair and having to learn how to walk again. More importantly... More
0: importantly she has amnesia. Amnesia. It's taken is taken to her family mansion by, uh, by her boyfriend, right. where her family is there. And they're all like, we're glad to have you back. And she's like, I have no idea who any of you right. people are, and you're all creepy as hell. And she has been
1: gone for six years and can't remember why she left. But as you go forward in the plot, you will find... The reasons why she left. You can also understand why they're really nervous about her being outside in the world. Now that she's back, they're determined to keep her there. The,
0: this is it. the The family are wonderful. I mean, you know, uh, January is is the innocent/ slash tabula rasa that is of, of the that is perfect for the genre because she has to ex- examine what's going on and she's the victim of this horrible horrible family uh, you have a uh, you know James Cos- cosmo oh, yeah. one of the great yeah. Scottish yeah. character actors and Eileen Nichols um, who actually played Renton's uh, father and mother in train spotting hmm. uh, reunited as her, 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 her parents here and um, uh, her sister, Catherine, played by Nora J. Noon, uh, who is overly happy to see her sister back. And uh, the best of the bunch, oh, James God. Lance as Lawrence, her brother, oh. who is... I seems to have fallen out of a Bertie Worcester But well, well, There's a wonderful Edwardian quality to all... Even in the well, they, they all... was they, they, I, one thing I noticed, is they're all... Wearing clothing from a slightly different period from each right. other, they're all suspended in time, and yeah. you find out the family is—it's fallen hard times. But then there's something else going on, and the less we tell you exactly. about the narrative, because this is classic down the rabbit hole gothic yeah. romance of the of the best of the genre. This is disturbing and creepy. And it is the cinematic equivalent of Purple Prose. It has a wonderful sinister butler. Any film with a sinister butler, I am in. I am sold. Um, The cinematography is great. I mean, this is a small film. Oh, yeah. um, But everything about it is just gleefully squalid. Yeah. Really unpleasant and and spooky in the
1: right ways. And yet you never feel offended or brutalized by it. Everything that happens happens and it makes sense and you go yes of course this is where the story has to go
0: and it also feels accurate because the british aristocracy are a weird bunch
1: yeah there's they they are are some weird stuff happening but you don't get that till later uh, oh I think it, no,
0: the thing is I, that's, that's inherent in the, in the script it's, it's the moment they turn there. up you kind of go oh yeah no that's that, that yeah, feels you so like my
1: mom's place it's a right shithole yeah, 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 you actually
0: grew up here and
1: you're like you look at it going arguably inbred and they're like oh and this uh, you know your boyfriend's not good enough but, again, we won't go into it because it's best not to know. I will say this also has a very fun uh, behind-the-scenes documentary.
0: Oh, it's one of the best you will see this year because yes. it's, it's quite amateurish because it's actually uh, made by the, uh, the screenwriter. screenwriter. Uh, Zuoto, I
1: can't remember his last name. Uh, he had an Italian name. But when we see this guy at the beginning of the documentary, it's 30 minutes short on the making of the film. And he's sitting on the couch, drinking a beer, wearing nothing but a bathrobe and sunglasses, and saying, this is going to be one of the worst uh, behind-the-scenes things you've ever seen. Because I don't know how to work the camera, and I'm five foot three, so I'm going to shoot up everybody's nostrils. It's going to be all low angles. And, and it turns out to actually, he gets some really good footage uh, and interviews with the cast. Uh, and I don't want to ruin any more of it for you. It's a lot of fun. People had fun making this movie, but it's obviously low budget. They made the most out of this old, decrepit house they found. And uh, the cast, all of them are very committed to this material. It's a really solid film, and it easily, easily my
0: pick of the week. And same here, yeah. And I come the last time we we a agreed on pick of the week, yeah. and b it was the giveaway as well. So yeah. lucky,
1: lucky, lucky
0: people. Oh well, wait, didn't we
1: do that with uh, uh, what was the one with the, the Japanese uh, revenge thriller, the cop?
0: Oh yes, actually, you're we, right.
1: That was one of the rare ones. Though, yeah, where it was like we both agreed
0: that it was yeah, Shinoda. So was it? Uh, oh. uh no, uh, World of Kanako. World of Kanako. Uh, yeah. how did I get that? Yeah, I don't I, I don't know where you got that from. I don't know where either. I make this up. After is a while all these it, movies blur. You together. just make it up as it goes along. No, uh yeah, this but, is yeah. absolutely uh, a splendid little addition to your collection. So how do you whip? Here's how it goes. You need to follow us on Twitter 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 Wait, uh and at one of us net. Um and using the hash the hashtag estranged giveaway. Um, what are we, what are we gonna, yeah, y- you, you can ask the question this week. <laughs> yeah! You see, I always, yeah, Chris ask... always used to put this on me when we were still doing the show together, so now, I want to ask ridiculous things
1: that can't actually be accomplished. Like, what's your favorite fireplace implement? <laughs> you know, which again, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh <laughs> I have nothing. Dead
0: Nothing. Air. Dead air. nothing. So Dead air. This is not... I feel so much... Okay, pressure I'll, 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 I'll take this. Um, okay. I don't he, know what the rules are. <laughs> there are no rules. Oh, when did but, we start having rules? oh so you, you not just paying have to, attention I mean, to the so just have, You just have to send something that amuses Chris? No. <laughs> No dick pics. No dick pics. Suddenly, no, 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 um, no, there's so many. Okay, uh, nah, I'm, gonna go, I'm gonna Here we go. Um, one of the most famous Gothic novels of all time is Dracula. Okay. Uh, everybody on the everybody on the planet at some point or other seems to have played Dracula, uh, apart from uh, Bo from. Um, <laughs> Uh, highly suspect reviews. Who's played Van Helsing? The mm, yep. um, Dracula next Stop. Okay, this is. I've got big... one. Who tried out yeah. for Dracula? Too, too late. Too late. You had your chance. Once you said Dracula, I knew what I was going to do. Okay. Um, who would be the best actor to play Dracula that has never played the part yet? And you get points for creativity on this one. So again, follow us on Twitter. One of us net uh, using the hashtag Estranged Giveaway. Who would be the best actor or actress? I'll go ahead on that then. To play Dracula that has never played the part yet. And you could win Estranged, which is absolutely our pick of the week. Anyway, we're done. Nothing to do with vampires. Yep, yeah, nothing to do with vampires. We're done. We're done. We are done. Yes. Thank you, Marco, again. Thank you. Always man. a pleasure to have you here. Likewise. And, and, you know, to wrap up in the classic and, and the established way, uh, no releases too big, no releases too small, from criterion to catastrophe review them all. Thank you so much. We gotta come up with a different ending. Now we done <laughs> tradition.